0: If you guys, are going around, do me a favor and open up your Bibles. Make sure I get the right section here, to John 14, and just stay there. We're going to look at some other portions of Scripture, but I want you to stay there because that's kind of where we're going to end up. Um, so we've been on this journey in this series, unprogressive, as we've been kind of talking about the fallacy of the progressive Christian movement, and we've kind of been beating up on them for a couple of weeks. And I want to uh, balance the scales a little bit today, right? It's it's very easy. To poke holes in, uh, in, a, in a set of doctrine that has so many holes in it. Um, but it's another thing to acknowledge when even a false movement has a point. Sometimes when you look at something, and go, I'm not even going to listen to anything you say because obviously you're out in left field. I don't need to hear anything. But when they make an accusation back, we should at least be willing to go, eh, you know what? They got a valid, They got a valid point there. You know, the, the birth of the progressive church movement is actually due in large part to the failures of the, of the true church. You know, some of the reasons that they give for why these people uh, um, uh, like Tony Jones started this emergent church movement that turned into the progressive church movement. There were some of the reasons they gave for this process, we got to take responsibility for that. We have to be able to look at it and go, yeah, you know what, they, they actually have a point. It, it's not a good enough point to do what they did. But it's a good enough point where we should stop and at least be willing to learn from that mistake, right? Learning from mistakes is a very powerful way of making sure we know what we're doing and that we're walking in the right direction. So I want to do a couple of things today. I want to, I want to deal a little bit with our own problems. And then I want to help us see something. So when we look at our own problems, it's very easy to say, ah, you know what, this is, this is, this is really difficult. But, It's not just that there are issues there. It's that God has given us the tools to walk in joy, to walk in peace, to walk in victory, even in our failures. Even in our failures, we can walk in victory if we just know a couple of basic things. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about something. I'm going to point the fingers kind of back to us. I'm going to... Look at some of these uh, some of these failures, but then I want to turn it around and show you something that can give you the strength to continue to walk in the peace that passes all understanding. Even when we see that sometimes we bear the responsibility for some of these problems. Right. So we're going to do that today. two pieces today. So. I personally think that today we're living in a time of prophetic fulfillment. We really are. We serve a faithful, we serve an awesome God who is so amazing to us that he gave us this thing that we call the Bible that contains all of these warnings about what's going to happen in the end days, these prophetic announcements about as as time starts to draw to a close, here are some things you're going to be seeing. Almost all of them have to do with the church. Not necessarily outside the church, but things happening in the church. When you start to see these things Not a lot of time left. Now, I think we're actually living in a time of prophetic fulfillment. These things are are coming to pass in a much more robust way than they really ever have. So what we want to do is we want to make sure, (coughs) excuse me, that we learn through these things. So how many of you are familiar with the military term called poisoning the well? This is an ancient military practice. It goes back as far as military records can be found, as far as his as far back as history will go, and as early as the uh, mid two thousands conflicts in the Middle East. And basically, what would happen is the losing military, as they were pulling out of the area, would poison the freshwater wells or or sow poison into the into the fields where they would grow food on their way out. It's kind of like if I can't have it, neither can you. It's like the ultimate act of spite. You lost, but the idea is, has has always been the same thing. Even though you've lost, you can still make it as hard as you possibly can on the ones that won. Because what inevitably would happen is when the freshwater wells are no longer good, the soil's no longer good, it takes years, sometimes decades, for that poison to work its way out of the water table. And then who wants to be the first one to try the well? You know, uh, you know, Doctor Mikey, he'll eat anything, you know, it's at some point in time. But in that initial period after the victory, what you end up doing is getting the victors to fight amongst themselves over the little resources that remain. So that was the purpose of it. It wasn't just to ruin the land. It was to make them turn their attention in and begin fighting amongst themselves. Cause if you got a million people to feed and half your farmland is no longer usable, who gets, who gets the land? You know, I fought harder than you did. I should get more land than you. Well, no, but our land got poisoned, so we should get half of yours. Oh no, oh no, you don't. And now the, the group that should be celebrating a victory and walking in that victory has now turned their animosity towards one another. It's a good thing that's never happened in the church. <laughs> right? <laughs> of course it hasn't. Now I want you to think about the mindset of our enemy. Some people get weirded out when you start talking about the devil because they don't like the idea of admitting that he's real. <laughs> but as Christians, as, 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 as people who have put their faith... In the work of Christ on the cross, we need to understand something. Whether you call him the devil, Lucifer, whatever name you want to give him, he's real. He's a real enemy and he only has one goal. See, the goal of the goal of the devil is not to turn you into a satanist. That's that's way too difficult. The goal of the devil is to simply keep you from God. That's it. By any means necessary. Even if those means are blessings, (laughs) you can be blessed in a very ungodly way. No matter what it is, the goal of the enemy is to keep you from God. Now you think about this in terms of this idea of poisoning the well. We know that the word of God is complete. We know that the canon of scripture is closed. We have the fullness of God. We have the full understanding of God. We know the beginning and we know the end. And if we know, he knows. He knows. He knows he loses. And he doesn't just lose a little, he loses big. So if you already know, I grew up in a military family. I've been been around soldiers my whole life, the soldier mentality and the way of thinking. When you know you're going to lose, and you know you're not going to survive, what's the only option left? Take as many with you as you can. That's, that's what you got left. That's the place of our enemy. Just make the victory as painful as possible. It's the only, to, it's the only tool he has left in his bag. So now think about this. Do you think that the idea of division within the church, division within the people of God... Is something that just organically happens or do you think this is possibly the enemy of our soul poisoning the freshwater wells that should be nourishing the land around us to get us to fight amongst ourselves instead of focusing our unified attention on the gospel mission and bringing that gospel to the world? Do you think it's possible that our enemy could be getting us to hate one another enough so that we forget to love others? I think it's been around for a very, very long time. We get far more interested in proving our point than showing the world God's point. Now, within the historic Christian church, there have always been division. And I'm not going to tell you that not all division is right, because there is some division that actually has to happen. I'll explain that here in just a minute. Um, Because there's some lines, honestly, that just can't be crossed. There are always going to be things that people do that we don't like. Things that people do that we don't necessarily agree with. But more importantly, there's always going to be groups within the church. And some of you may have come out of those churches. I actually came out of one of those churches when I first got saved. And this group believed that they were the only ones that had it right. I remember the pastor who led me to the Lord saying from the pulpit, there are no other God-fearing churches in the North Country but ours. And at the time I was like, wow. Wow. What an amazingly anointed man. And then my sister came to, and my sister was actually at church with me that day. And she was basically like, I, I, I remember being totally mesmerized by this. And I remember she was sitting there. She had her Bible open. She had a notebook and she had a pen. She was so happy that I was going to church. And he said that and I watched her do this. And I was like, well, what's up with that? You're disrespecting the man of God. What I didn't realize is she realized I don't need to hear any more of this. Because she also came out of churches like that. She knew exactly where I was. And when we left, I asked her, what did you think? And this is what she told me. I'm so glad you got saved. I'm so glad you're going to church. You need to find a different one. Well, it's not very fair. But I was smart enough to turn around and ask a simple question. Is she right? Am I not seeing something? Then I went back to the statement. That can't be right. This can't be the only people in the North Country that really pray, that are really saved, that really know. That doesn't make any sense. But I almost bought it hook, line, and sinker. And that's a line of division that shouldn't exist. Whenever you think you're the only, you're you're in trouble, because that's not the way that works. Now, there are basically two forms where division comes into play. The first one is theological, and the second one is methodological big $5 word there theological is unfortunately where division occasionally really does have to happen. There are simply lines that we cannot cross. Let me give you an example. We've been talking through the progressive Christian movement and how they do not believe in the authority of scripture. It's a book about God, not God's word to us. I'm not going to cross that line. I'm not even going to play with it. They also believe that Jesus did not come and die on the cross for our sins. I can't. I can't make that jump, right? I can't connect in good faith in the name of Christ in someone who won't even acknowledge the work of Christ. I can't take that theological jump. I can't do it. So there's a clear line of division that has to happen there, but those are the right places to divide. And remember, when you divide like that, you don't write off the people. You simply write off the theology. I love you, man, but there's no way I'm believing this. And you do your best to bring them the truth. You never write off the individual because God doesn't write off the individual. The people who are in the worst cults imaginable around the world, God still loves them. God still wants to save them. And God's people need to still reach out to them. So it's never the people, but it's always the theology. When you got churches telling you that instead of praying to God, you should pray to saints. Sorry, I'm not going there. That's a theological line I won't cross. Because scripture tells me to pray to God, not to men, right? Doesn't matter how godly someone was, or if they have been declared a saint, they can't save my soul and they can't help me in this world. They're as dead now as I will be later. <laughs> when people teach that you, you can't read the Bible for yourself, it's a theological line I cannot cross. Because scripture tells me to be in his word daily. You understand what I'm saying? There are right places where we simply cannot cross. But we always try to reach out to the people who are on the opposite side of that line with love and compassion, the same love and compassion that Christ would have towards us if we were on the other side of that line. Now, the second, the mythological, the mythological. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, okay. Um, so the methodological side, this is where it, it gets funny. We talked about this yesterday in the class. The charismatic teachings and the didactic teachings. And the difference in the two and don't cross the streams. Um, for those of you who don't know what that means, talk to me later. I'll be happy to explain that to you. Um, but the idea is that the methodological things are just life application stuff that really don't make a difference when it comes to salvation. They're not salvation issues. They don't save your soul. They don't forgive your sin. They don't bring you closer to God. They're just personal preferences. You know, I, I mean, how many of you think that the people who put ham and pineapple on pizza are just, there's, the devil is in them, right? I love ham and pineapple pizza. You know my favorite thing to do with it? Dip it in blue cheese dressing. Mm -hmm. Right? Love it. It's a personal preference. It doesn't mean that I have the devil in me. That's a matter of opinion. Uh, (laughs) Now check this out. Pews or chairs? I've been told that real churches have pews. And not only pews, pews without soft stuff on the bottom of them. Church should have pain involved. (laughs) It's like, okay, sure, whatever. Choir or worship team? See? I don't want to talk anymore. I'm going to say the wrong thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Which one do you like? How about this one? Take communion yourself, or the priest is the only one who can administer the elements. A normal human being cannot touch communion supplies. That dehydrated disc of whatever foam they made it out of can only be touched by priests. Because it is only when a priest touches that thing that could take most of the water out of the ocean. That it turns into something that you can digest when they place it in your mouth. Even though all through scripture people took communion by themselves. Right? Methodological things are things that the Bible does not have a clear statement on. The Bible does not give us a clear process to follow. So therefore, there is not a clear process to follow. It's just what you prefer. You want to go to an old church with stained glass windows? Awesome. Go ahead. When I was working, still working in the restaurants, one of my bosses had, uh, had several restaurants in Florida and he brought me down for a couple of months and I spent some time down there helping him open up some new places and I had a blast Because every week we went to a gigantic Catholic church and he knew (laughs) he knew he's just like, just please don't say anything because my mother-in-law will murder me. It's fine. No problem. I had a blast every week. They had good worship. It was a good message. I wasn't allowed to take communion, but I didn't care about that. I got to sit with people I would, never, no, uh, would normally never be with and worship the same God who died on the cross for both of us. And it was okay. Until one of them found out that I was, at that time, an assistant pastor up here and that I read the Bible not in Latin. And it was just like, you were good until that point. <laughs> like, really? You didn't care 10 seconds ago. And now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I can't believe you would do this. How dare you read the word of God for yourself? And not in the original language, because obviously Jesus spoke Latin. Wait, hold on. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> See, over the centuries, especially since the 1600s when the Protestant Reformation happened, denominations, especially Protestant, which by the way, if you don't know where that word comes from, it means protest protestant we were protesting the validity of the catholic church that's where the protestant reformation came from we didn't like the idea of what they were teaching so we broke off to create our own denomination of protestants and since the 1600s the protestants have continued to protest usually each other Since that time, there's an old number that has been circulating for a long time, uh, and it's about 33,000, about 33,000 denominational, registered denominational churches, which means a church that has more than one in its group, right? You're planting other churches to spread your your belief. Over 33,000 Protestant denominations globally. Now, recently, some people have been throwing a fit for that number because it makes the Protestant church look bad. I read an article this week. It was published in this year, and the article basically said this. Said, even though there is good scholarly reasons to believe the 33,000 number, we shouldn't use it. <laughs> good scholarly reasons to use the 33,000 number, but we shouldn't use it. And the reason he does is because he's citing an article put out by, um, let's see, uh, it's by the World Census of Religious Activities by the UN Information Center, where it says that only 23,000 competing or contradictory denominations exist in the world, with an average of five being added every week since 1989, <laughs> Now, just doing a little bit of quick math, if you take that from 1989, just up to date, you're adding, what is it, 8,500 to 23,000. Folks, we're not making ourselves look any better. We're not helping the problem. It's not 33,000. It's only 23,000, but we make five more each week. (laughs) Are you kidding me? So after Sunday, from Monday to Friday, we're creating new denominations in the Protestant church because somehow we're doing something wrong? That guitar player uses a capo. We need to start another church. Some of you don't know what a capo is. It's fine. That's how irrelevant it is. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's just amazing. Now, division that we are most familiar with, obviously, is Catholic versus Protestant. But I want to focus on Protestant. What about just inside the Protestant denominations? Some of you may have heard some of these. How about Baptist? Well, now there's First Baptist. American Baptist, Southern Baptist, Reform Baptist. It goes on and on and on and on. There's actually different versions of Southern Baptist and different versions of American Baptist, just so you know that. How about Methodist? United Methodist. And now a new one, because the Methodist church just split pretty squarely down the middle. And it's called the Liberation Methodist Connection. Sounds like a coffee shop. Now, all of these that I'm going to I'm going to read to you are real names of real churches that I have had a connection with at some point in time in my ministry life, which is over the last 27 years. The Church of God, the Holy Church of God, the Church of Christ, the Holy Church of Christ, the Church of God in Christ. You guessed it, the Holy Church of God in Christ. You have non denominational you have interdenominational. You have House of Hope and then the Holy Ghost House of Miracles. That's my personal favorite one. You got River of Hope, River of Grace, and River of Life. Okay? At one point in time, I don't know how many of you realize this. At one point in time, on the square in Watertown, there were 13 churches on the square. Storefront churches. 13. They all came out of one church split. You're talking about a group of people that can't get along. Thirteen churches, all in the same place, serving the same God, cannot fellowship with one another because of some irreconcilable difference. Now, within the Protestant church, there's also other denominations that we need to know, realize that this affects them too. Uh, up here we have large Mennonite and Amish community. You know, this division isn't just in mainstream churches. Here's some of some of the other, other things you may not know. You have Orthodox Mennonites, Conservative Mennonites, Stauffer Mennonites, Redenbach Old Order Mennonites, Reform Mennonites, Kaufman Amish Mennonite. Amish Mennonite? And my absolute favorite one, because I can't say this without some sort of Austrian accent, the Schwarzengruber Amish. I'm not kidding. I'm sorry, swartzengruber. There is no group within Christianity that is untouched by division. And almost always, it's, it's methodological. Almost always. Very few times is it theological. It comes down to the type of music that we sing. It comes down to the type of instruments that we use. Those devil drums. And those drums just bring in the devil every single time. Demons love drums. Sorry, Abel. How about this? These are conversations I have had. You can play the organ, but not the piano. Because obviously Jesus played the organ and there was no piano. You can play the piano, but not the electric piano. How about this one? You can play guitar, but not the electric guitar. And for the love of all that's holy, don't use effects on anything because demons love reverb. Anyone ever heard any of these arguments? (laughs) Maybe I'm not putting my hands up because someone's going to see me online and they're going to know it's me. I've been there. I've had these conversations and it drives me insane because at one point in time, I believed it. How about this? How we take communion. People have left our church because of the way we do communion. For those of you who might be vis- may be visiting here, this is the way we take communion. At the beginning of every month, we have tables that are in the back. And during worship, you get up and decide when you want to take communion with your family. And you do it yourself. I remember at one uh, Q&A session, there was uh, one dad who was upset with me before they before they had left. Because he had to... Now, now stop this. And you'll remember it specifically. Because uh, I remember you in the back going... <laughs> He's saying, I don't like the way we do this because, listen... I have to stop worship and explain what communion means to my child. My response was, that's the point. Congratulate, Ding, you win. That's the whole idea. That the father, the head of the household, would explain what it means to celebrate communion to one of their kids. This shouldn't be that difficult. But it was too much. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't fellowship here. You do communion wrong. How about this one? The way we let our women dress. Ladies, a lot of ankles in here today. All right. There's some secrets Victoria should just keep. All right. And look, I'm not going to tell anyone how to dress. But here's the only thing that I, that I will say about that. If you have to pull it, tug it, or tape it. Okay. If you're in an outfit you don't dare sit down in. You might want to rethink your wardrobe choices or the goal of that particular outfit, because in church, probably not a great idea, probably not a great idea. You know, just saying, guys, same goes for all of you. (laughs) Some of you are going, I don't know what that means. It's fine. It's good. The only thing I'll say to you guys, gentlemen, no barn boots in the building, please, 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 please. That's all I'm going to say. How about the translation of the Bible that we use? Because Jesus only used the King James. How about whether or not we allow women to be leaders? Even though God did. How about this one? How we treat people who've been divorced. Pastor, do you know that you have a divorced person on your leadership team? Yep. And... Well, that's just not right. <laughs> you ever read in the Bible where God divorced Israel? He did not. Please look it up, because yes, he did. It's not the unforgivable sin, folks. How about this one? Can you be saved without speaking in tongues? These are, these are things that the list goes on and on and on and on, and it doesn't just start with us. It goes all the way back to the disciples, Matthew 18, 1 through 5. Check this out. My big iPad is gone, so now I'm reading this off of my phone, which is not not necessarily going to work. At the time... <laughs> this is why glasses are a joke. I've either got to do this or this. It's one of the two. How about this one? At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "Who? listen to this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, Set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless one of one of you are converted and become like this little child. Excuse me. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. The disciples wanted a rank. They wanted a rank. They wanted a title. They wanted Jesus to tell the people who were around them, we are the only ones who do this right. We are the only ones who are really saved. We're the ones you come to to know what it really means to serve God. They wanted a position. Jesus brings a child. You know what the interesting thing about a child is? Child is just happy to be there. That's why I believe Jesus brought the child. It's just passive ignorance child is just happy to be there. So let me ask you a question. I think what Jesus is saying is, isn't heaven enough? Why do you need stripes on your arm? Why do you need a rank? Why do you need a position? Isn't heaven enough? Can't we just go with that? There's always things that are going to try to divide us. There are always things that are going to try to separate us, but we don't need to focus on those things because God has given us something that can bring us a level of peace, a level of of understanding in the world around us, even though we're surrounded by chaos, that has no bearing on the amount of division thrown at us. The world, the enemy, wants to poison the well. God wants you to walk in peace. And I want to show you something that I think is one of the most overlooked passages in Scripture. Um, so, uh, uh, guys in the back, if you will bring the slide. I want to skip the next one and just bring it to the one that's labeled John 14, 27. I want to read to you this thing that Jesus said that is just amazing. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace... I give to you not as a world gives. Do I give to you? Let you listen to this. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. My peace, I bring you my peace. I give you now. The cool thing is the Bible, the new Testament is written predominantly in Greek, but you have to remember that Jesus wasn't Greek. He was Hebrew. So the language that he uses, we have to think in the way that they would be thinking. So in terms of a Hebrew talking about my peace, I give you my peace. I leave you. I love this word peace. Now, in the Hebrew, the word peace is translated shalom. Excuse me. And Paul uses it in almost the introduction to almost all of his letters. You might remember hearing things like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Hebrew, this word peace is very interesting. It's it's shalom. It's a greeting and a salutation. You'd say it when you meet someone. You'd say say it when they left. And it's just kind of evolved into that. But the word peace has a very deep meaning to it. So the Hebrew letters also have meanings. Every Hebrew letter is trying to represent a truth in the world that is around us. So the, the letters used to create words in Hebrew are not accidental. Remember, ancient languages, they didn't have an alphabet. They had to create an alphabet that made sense to them. So they would turn a symbol, a letter, into something that represented that. That. And then they would string words together by putting these these things together that represented what the word was trying to convey. This is how written language evolved. This is why we study language. And I love the way this works. So every Hebrew word comes from what's called a root family. Okay, a root family. So even shalom is not the, the root. It is it is a word after the root. And the root word for shalom is shalam. Sounds like a, a sound, doesn't it? Shalam. And it means to complete or make whole. To complete or make whole. Now it's got three letters in it. Shin, Lamed, and Mem. And basically what they mean is, Shin means its teeth. It means to destroy. Lamed is a shepherd's staff. It means authority. And mem is water or chaos. And you might be thinking, how do you get water and chaos out of a square? It's the way the word is, the letter has changed over the, over the years. This is how it, how it looks today. So it means chaos. So essentially the word to complete or restore means to destroy the authority of chaos. Do you see how the word kind of, kind of works together? And this is, this is how they, how they ended up spelling the word. To restore something or to make good on a promise means to take away the authority of chaos now if you want to be restored from alcoholism you have to take away that authority of chaos which might be your alcoholism right if you're a drug addict you have to take away the authority of that addiction you have to destroy the authority of that chaos Isn't that interesting how this all works now the word shalom adds a letter so you have to go back to the root To restore or make good on a promise. But you also have to understand what that other letter does. So when Jesus says, my peace, I leave you. Do not be afraid. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Check this out. The four letters, same thing. Shin, Lamed, Vav, and Mem. So the word in literal Hebrew means to destroy the authority that has bound you. To chaos. The destruction of the authority that has bound you to chaos. What is the authority that has bound us to chaos? Sin. Sin is the authority that has bound us to chaos. And I think it's very interesting that the word bind is also a nail. And it took three of them to unbind us. Jesus is saying, my peace... I bring you my peace. I leave you. I have destroyed the authority that has bound you to chaos. And I leave you with that knowledge. And with that knowledge, you do not need to be troubled. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to worry about these things that divide. Just trust me. And when Paul says peace to you from God, our father, we read the term peace and we think it means the absence of conflict. Peace to you, brother. May your, you might be thinking, may your day go well and be free of conflict. It's not what it's saying, is it? Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the victory within the conflict. You don't have peace when your enemy is at your border doing nothing. A lot of military and ex military in here. If all of a sudden, foreign military masses on our border but doesn't cross it, do you have peace? No. You know something about to go down. If all of the strength of your enemy is now gone, They have no, listen, they have no means by which to fight. Do you have peace? Yes, you do. Because you have victory. Jesus brought us peace in victory because he has already won the battle. When Jesus says, the battle belongs to me, the battle is not of this world. I have won this battle already. He's saying, walk in the peace and understanding that there's, listen, no reason to fight. None. We can look at our past as the church and say, we have failed here, 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 and here. And our failures have led to these offshoots. And we need to own that. But I can still walk in peace and victory knowing that even those people on the other side of that line of division, I don't have to hate those people. I don't have to fight those people. I don't have to worry about those people. I need to reach those people. Because all of the authority that has bound us to chaos has been destroyed. I just need to release them from it. See the simplicity there? I don't need to convince them to believe the way I do. I simply need to bring them to the truth of Christ. And I can do that because the battle has already been won. I can walk in the peace that passes all understanding because Jesus has destroyed the authority of that has bound me to chaos I'm free I am victorious I am no longer bound I am no longer in struggle even if my body fails me it doesn't matter eventually this meat bag is going to stop working and I get to go to heaven wish it was a nicer meat bag but still Jesus wants us to walk in peace. The enemy wants us to walk in confusion. The enemy wants us to wants to destroy the well. He wants to poison the well. He wants us to keep us fighting over things that make no difference. But Jesus is telling us something very, very simple. Let it go. Don't start singing the song. Okay. Just let just let it go. It doesn't matter. Draw the lines where they need to be drawn. Don't worry about the rest. Reach those people. Love those people. And do it in the knowledge that there's nothing out there that can hurt you that you don't let hurt you. If the devil gets a foothold in your life, it's because you let him. He doesn't have any more weapons. He doesn't have any more strength. He doesn't have anything. He's already lost. Let's treat him that way.